Well, have you ever traveled to a place, maybe a foreign land, where you felt like a fish out of water, where there was nothing similar, there was nothing that was normal to you? Maybe it was the food or the side of the road that you drove on or the language that was spoken. Maybe you looked uh, completely unlike all the people around you and perhaps even the beliefs that you have about truth and life and God were completely different. Have you ever been there? Ever been in a foreign land where you feel like a fish out of water? Have you ever been in Montgomery County? Some of you are newer to Montgomery County. Have you ever been in Montgomery County and talked with someone who views the world completely different than you do, that views politics different than you do, economy different than you do, raising kids different than you do, and yes, believes completely different than you do about God and truth? You ever been there? You ever had those discussions? You ever wonder, maybe you've been online and you've participated or observed I like to do that, observe all the online wars that happen and you kind of wonder in the back of your head like, what happened to this person for them to believe that? You been there? And for the Christian in the room, as we come to God's word, which is unchanging and timeless and it has universal truths that not only apply to our lives but to all people's lives about how We know God and who God is and how we ought to live, unwavering truths, and yet we live in this pluralistic society where the only thing that is really true is that we don't put up with people and thoughts and beliefs that apply to everyone. We're intolerant only of those kinds of thoughts. You ever had those kinds of conversations? You ever been called names because you take a thought or a stand even graciously in the war of words. What do we do? How do we share? Where do we start? What do we avoid? How do we respond as believers in unwavering truth that live in a world where everything is wavering? Hard calling. Here's what some of us do, and maybe this changes. Let me just give you a few responses from all of us. Sometimes we don't respond. Sometimes we don't respond. We don't know what to say. We don't know where to start. So you're kind of functionally, spiritually living on a long Labor Day where you're at the beach or you're at Kima, and you've just checked out because you don't know how to respond and you don't want to be canceled. And maybe you just respond out of frustration. You do respond, you just respond out of frustration and anger toward people. You're like the angry bird that every time you come into contact with something, you just blow up. Maybe that's the response to a world, a pluralistic world that we live in. And maybe you just respond with Jesus, but people aren't really to Jesus yet, and you're not able yet to give them a right and good framework to understanding God and a framework or a worldview that could get people to Jesus. Or maybe on the flip side, you respond, or we respond with a bit of capitulation. And what I mean by that, to a world in their broader framework where you just kind of give in and say, yeah, that's good. You can define Love that way, even though God defines it a different way. You can define justice this way, even though God defines it a different way. It's all right. It's all good. There's different 
on that graph, there's different responses that we often have, all of us, to a strange new world that we live in. How do we learn to respond to a world with both truth and grace? See also Jesus. How do we do that? That's not easy. This morning, I want to break a little bit from Ecclesiastes. We're going to break from Ecclesiastes this morning. We'll pick it up next week, chapter 3, middle of 3, next week. But I want to show you this morning what it looks like and what it takes to be a witness in a post-Christian world by looking at a pre-Christian world, by, by looking at first century, right after the death of Jesus, where the proclamation of the gospel goes out, Jesus, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, the disciples go out in the book of Acts, and they proclaim Jesus, the Messiah, to a world that is pluralistic, much like ours. In the words of the teacher of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And surely the first century is a little bit different than the world, the 21st century. But there are so many parallels as we think of first century and the pluralism of first century and all their different ideas. And so we'll go there, Acts chapter 17, perhaps a familiar text to you. Acts 17 and verses 16 through 34, that will be our text this morning, page 926, if you need a Bible close to you, there's probably one on your chair. The words will be up here. See, Jesus has already come, and we read the New Testament, and we read the Gospels where Jesus shows up, and he lives his life, and he dies, and he's buried, and he rises again, and they go out and proclaim the good news of the Gospel, and they go from Jerusalem in the book of Acts to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. And when you get to Acts chapter 17, Paul's in his second missionary journey, and he's come from Berea, and here's what happens. There's a pattern. As these guys go and share the gospel from place to place and plant churches and encourage churches from place to place, they first go to the synagogue, if there's a synagogue in the place, and then they go out into the community. But here's what happens to all these guys. The Jews, who were zealous Jews, who didn't like the way, the Messiah Jesus, they would come and persecute. They would travel. They were a traveling persecution of Paul and Peter and these men. And so Paul is in Berea, and he gets persecuted, and Silas and Timothy say, you need to leave. You need to take a labor day, and you need to go to Athens, and that's where we pick it up. Paul's supposed to be taking a break until Timothy and Silas get to him. Let's see what Paul does in the city of Athens, which is in Greece. Let's read the text together. And here's what I want to do this morning, which is a, a little bit different. than I'm going to read the text, but as I read, I'm going to explain things in the text to you so you get a feel of what it would have been like to be in Paul's shoes we get a feel of what it would be like to be in this pre-Christian world that worshiped all kinds of Greek gods, that was pluralistic. So walk with me in this text, and I'm going to make observation. We'll have the words on the screen, but I'm going to just stop and talk you through this text so you get a real feel and understanding of what Paul was working in and what he did about it, how he responded, how he didn't respond. You with me? Let me start. Verse 16, 
Paul's showed up to Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, previous verse, at Athens, and let me just stop. What do you know about Athens in the ancient world? See, Athens was the epicenter of intellectual and philosophical thought. It was the epicenter for that, and it was on a little bit of decline, but this is where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, these are where these thinkers from 8th century B.C. all the way to 1st century would come and debate and talk. The greatest philosophers of history, people would say, came from this place. And so Paul's supposed to be taking a break, but what does he do? Look at it. He's in this place of intellect and philosophy, the center of the Greco-Roman world. And yeah, the Romans, man, they took over stuff physically. They went to war and took everything over. But you know who had the minds of people? The Greeks. And this is the epicenter of the Greek-Roman world as it relates to intellect and thought. And Paul's there. What's he going to do? Is he just going to take a break? Look at it. He's in Athens. His spirit was provoked, literally, greatly distressed within him. Why? Look at the next phrase. As he saw, so he's observing the city, he's sitting on the park bench. The city was full of idols. This is the pantheon of the Greek gods. Perhaps you've studied this in school. All the different gods, Zeus, Athena, Hermes, all of them. And in Athens in the day, Basically a three-to-one ratio of idols to people. There's about 10,000 people in Athens. There's about 30,000 idols that showed up in shrines, that showed up in temples and rituals, and they had a domain. And so like in this section of the city, because Zeus was the grand god, like this was Zeus's domain over here, and then you had like Athena Boulevard over here, and they were in boundary spots in the city, but all over the city, 30,000 idols to 10,000 people. This is what Paul's looking at, sitting on the bench, and he's supposed to be taking a break. What does Paul do? So he did what? He went, and he reasoned. Where did he start? He started in the synagogue. Like always, that was his pattern. He goes to the synagogue. Do you think he, when he goes to the synagogue and he's meeting with Jews in Athens, do you think Uh, that he's talking to them about a pantheon of gods? Or do you think he breaks out the Torah and talks about how Jesus points to Messiah, points back to Messiah that you crucified this Jesus. So he's in the synagogue, so he's talking to Jews. And so he's gonna contextualize his message to the Jews. He doesn't sit on a bench. He gets going. He's with the Jews and then the devout person. And then he goes where? He goes to the marketplace. When you and I think about the marketplace, we think of like a food court. The marketplace or the agora in that day was the center of the city. It's politics. It's religion. It's study. The university was here. This is where people hung out. This is where life happened. The agora, the marketplace of ideas. So he goes into the thick of it. He's just been persecuted at Berea and everywhere else, and he goes back into the thick of it on Labor Day. And it says that he was there how often? Every day. And what was he doing every day? He was hanging out with people who happened to be there, so it didn't matter to him whether it was a politician he was talking to or a philosopher he was talking to or a student or an athlete. He talked to them, and he talked to them about Jesus and the resurrection. 
And then it gets more specific as you look at it. So picture yourself there walking through this. You're going, no way, man, I wouldn't have done that. And then he says in 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Two different types of philosophers. The Epicurean is the one who is a functional atheist, and the way that he answers the question of suffering in the world is by pleasure and comfort. And so they just given themselves over to the philosophy of pleasure. See also Ecclesiastes, maybe. We're just going to seek pleasure and comfort, whatever may happen. And then there's the Stoic, and the Stoic philosopher of that day was the primary philosophy of Athens in the Greek world. The Stoic was a person committed to logic and reason, unlike maybe today. Maybe today we're Epicureans. What do you think? But the Stoic was committed to logic and reason and duty and also appealing to the different gods who weren't very temperate. Marcus Aurelius, you know that name? He was a Stoic philosopher. The fate of the gods. See also Gladiator? You tracking with all this information? Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they wanted to hear Paul. What does this, and here's what they say to him though. What does this babbler wish to say? That's not a compliment, y'all. The word we get for babbler is seed picker. Here's the picture. You know how a bird takes a seed and he puts it over here and then he goes and gets a different seed and puts it in the same place? They can't make sense of what Paul's saying. They're saying he's just borrowing from this philosophy and this philosophy and this philosophy, and he's trying to bring something together. This is like a nerdy intellectual punk, okay? That's what, that's what they're doing to Paul here. This is not an encouraging word. What does this babbler or seed picker wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Look at that word. It's not foreign divinity. It's foreign divinities, plural. So as he preaches about Jesus and the resurrection, how do they interpret it? Paul's pretty clear. I don't know if y'all, you know, like he's a pretty clear teacher, and yet people get it wrong. They think, I think what they, people think in Athens is, okay, he's describing God, God the Father, and then Jesus, the Son, and he's God, and so they're confused about the message. They don't understand it. This is the strange things to their ears because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Be encouraged. I'm encouraged as a preacher that I'm supposed to communicate truth. And sometimes people don't get it. You ought to be encouraged as well as you engage in a world that doesn't know Jesus, that there's going to be confusion. Paul had it here. So be encouraged by that. But look at what happens, verse 19. And they took him and brought him, I don't think this is by force, to the Areopagus. You know what the Areopagus is? This is the hill of Ares, the god of war. We get the translation Mars Hill. So, you're, so he's in the Agora in the epicenter of the Greco-Roman world, in the marketplace of this intellectual city, the greatest and grandest intellectual city where philosophers hang out and people have thoughts about eternity and life. And then he goes to the Areopagus. This is where 30 people on a board, like the Harvard board, think about the board of regents in Harvard, really smart people. He gets to go hang out with them. This is the top of the top of intellectualism and human wisdom. He's there. Do you remember his calling in Acts chapter 9? What's his calling? To go to the kings and the princes of the world. He's there. 
So he goes to the Areopagus. And oh, by the way, 400 years before this, this is the group of people that made the decision to have Socrates put to death. This is where we're at, the height of human wisdom for eight centuries. He gets to go teach this new teaching that you're presenting. Y'all, this is like the gospel opportunity that you just get put on a tee and you get the opportunity before people you could never imagine to share the gospel. Why? Because they're intrigued. They're intrigued by something new. Do you see it? Verse 20, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So in a plural world, there is, at least there, an openness to listen to this new teaching. You catch that? Not sure that applies today. And then it's, the text says this, feel this. Now all the Athenian, Athenians, the Greeks and the foreigners, that's the Romans and the Jews and everybody else, who live there would spend their time in, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I don't know what work got done in Athens. Maybe that's why the city was on decline. Nobody worked. Everybody just wanted to talk about new philosophies and new ideas. They just wanted to listen to this. So what's Paul going to do? How's he going to share the truth of God's word, specifically the gospel, with these pluralistic people who worship all these different gods, appeal to all these false gods who also have given themselves over to pleasure and duty of work and pleasure? You ever wonder, how, how do I share the, my faith with them? Look at how Paul does it. Notice he's provoked. He's provoked in his spirit, which means he's distressed because he cares about God's glory and the truth. But do you see him blowing up? Have you seen him blow up yet on anybody? No. Look at what he does. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's not a jerk. He's respectful in his address to the Harvard board, to the Epicureans, to the people who believe in all kinds of different gods. He's saying religious because maybe they're pious, the Stoic, maybe they're superstitious, but he's not a jerk. In his provocation, it doesn't mean that he's a jerk to the people. Keep looking. You're very religious. For as I pass along and, what's the next word? Observed. He's watching. He's taking in what they believe and how they think and what they do. Look at it. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And here's his opening. I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. So here's the deal. In Greek, in the false gods of the Greek community, here's what they're doing. They're covering their bases. Just in case we missed one of the gods, just in case we missed one, we're going to have an altar that covers them, all the rest of them we missed, to the unknown god. So if we make them mad, we're appealing to them. Do you catch that? That's what they're doing. They're covering their bases. But look at what Paul does as an entryway to teach them about a framework of the true God. 
the one true God. Look at this. I found also this altar to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, let me tell you, Harvard board, as the babbler (laughs) about the God that you don't know. The God that you don't know. Catch that. Opening. This is where he starts. Notice he starts with a framework. For them to understand the God of the universe. He starts here in 24. Look at it. The God who made the world God's creator. Singular. He created the world. Genesis 1.1. And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So to the Epicurean, who's a functional atheist, he puts God into the mix. And to the Stoic, who believes in a pantheon of gods, he says, no, there's one. And you know all he has to do from the Areopagus right here? All he has to do is point to the 30,000 idols in the city and says, the God of creation, the God of the universe who's made everything, does not live in temples made by man. Here they are, 30,000 of them. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands. See, God is not only creator, that's his first message. His second thought about the character of God is God is the sustainer, right? He's the life giver. He's not, he has no need to be served by human hands as though he needs anything. Do you know what the job, we're talking about them not having a job? One of the predominant jobs in Athens was people cleaning these handmade idols so they didn't get dirty. And think about this, the, the other job was to, to put food or sacrifice in front of them, not that they ever took it, but just objects. And so he's pressing into what they believe, but he's doing it in a pretty gracious way. He's not served with human hands, though he needed anything. As a matter of fact, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He turns it on their head. He's like, no, no, no. God is the sustainer. He's the one who gives life to us, not us to them. Colossians, we've been in Colossians this past summer. In Christ, all things work together. Not only is God sustainer, look at verse 26. You see his message, the framework. And he says, and he made one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, meaning God is the ordainer. And he sets the boundaries, not the gods. You know how their gods functioned? All the gods had their own little boundaries and their own little places. And and he's saying, no, 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 there's one God over all of that. The other thing they believe is that each god produced different races. Okay? Each person of a different race comes from, and they were their predominant race. The Greeks, the Romans. This is why when they went to war, they destroyed the barbarians. They destroyed everybody. So these are people who are racist and believe that they are above others. And so they didn't think twice about taking over other countries, other peoples, because they were superior. Has that ever happened in history? No, God is the ordainer. God made from one man, all of us, in his image. This is Paul's message. It's a framework that he's giving them to get to something, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. Think Homer, the Greek poet, 
in the Odyssey. I'll give you more later. And find him. So it's the picture of groping in the dark. People trying to find God, spending their time on something new. And then he gives two other poets references. This is Paul referencing poets, Greek poets that these people would know. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a poet from their day. Some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He knows the Greek-Roman culture so well that he can quote poets and writers from their day so that they understand the truth of God that he's trying to teach them. Pretty phenomenal. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, like right in front of you, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance. As God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's closing the deal. All right, do you see it? But look at what he does. Because he has fixed the day, that's judgment. God is patient. But there's a judgment which we will judge the world in righteousness. Here it is. By a man. Not Adam. The second Adam. Whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. Jesus. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. Do you see it? Now. Neither Epicureans or Stoics believed in the resurrection. They believed that the material world and the material body, your flesh and blood, didn't matter. That's why they gave themselves to pleasure. That's why nothing mattered. It was the immaterial that mattered. So many people, what's the response to resurrection, to this truth? Look at it. This is the response of the people. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Because they had a completely different worldview, didn't they? They didn't, they didn't view the body like we do. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So what's the response? Some mocked them, seed picker, strange things. And others said, we want to hear more. We're intrigued. We're curious. We're seekers. So Paul went out from their midst. Sometimes it takes intellectuals a long time, doesn't it? But some men joined him and believed. Among those were Dionysus and a woman named Demarius and others of them. It looks like four people from the Harvard board came to know Christ. I would say that's a good day. But some men joined and believed. So here's the deal. Let me, let me give you, that's a long explanation of this text, but there's a lot here. Paul shows up, he doesn't take a break, he engages the Jews, he engages the people in the marketplace, they send them to the Areopagus, and he preaches and gives them a biblical framework of who God is that's completely different, and then he points them to the Logos, real knowledge, Jesus, to the wisdom of God, Jesus, and the resurrection. Some mocked, some believed, and some were seeking. You see this pattern? So let me give you some thoughts for the road, if you will. Let me give you some thoughts about how we engage a post-Christian world that we do live in. Where people are going, what are you talking about? You ever had that? People look at you and you're like, man, that's strange. You're a strange human being for believing what you do. You're a strange human being for going to church on Sunday. You're a strange human being Kids, high school kids, middle school kids, 
saving yourself to marriage. That's, you're a strange human being for defining love that way and defining freedom that way, finding truth that way, finding mercy that way. You're strange. If people don't think you're a little bit strange outside the faith, maybe we're not sharing enough. Maybe we're not talking to them enough. So let me give you some different thoughts, just some takeaways, okay? A num- five takeaways. You're going, it's 1054. How are you going to do this? Football just started. I don't even have that excuse anymore. First of all, you've got to study. You've got to know the shifting culture that you live in. It's always shifting. It's always changing what's politically correct. The, the value system of our day is shifting and changing This is what Paul did. He observed his city. He observed the idols, the philosophers, the beliefs of his day. When a missionary goes to a foreign place, I know some of you have done this before. Some of you have been missionaries. What do you do? You study the language and the culture. You know, want to know what makes them tick. Can I tell you, Magnolia, Texas, Woodlands, Texas, Conroe, Texas, you're a missionary. So do you know Conroe? Do you know Magnolia? Do you know the Woodlands? Do you know Tomball? Do you know what makes people tick around you? You know what they trust in, what they believe in, what are their idols, and yes, it's not on the side of the road, but what are the idols of pleasure and comfort and possessions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Do we know how our world ticks around us in this context? Do you know? And some of you say, well, that's too much work. Some of us are like, I'm too old for that. That's crazy. The things that young people believe, That's always been that way. Nothing's new under the sun. We've got to engage. We've got to understand the culture as Paul did to engage it. There's some books down here. After church, come find me. There's some great resources, Christian resources to help you understand the culture you live in. Our staff, a few people on our staff and our elder team are reading, reading a book called Strange New World. Encourage you. It's down here. Telling the Truth, D.A. Carson, great, to just give you some framework to go, why is everything so crazy? Why is there a sexual revolution in our culture? Why do people say love is love and it's okay, whatever's okay? Why, why do people say that? This makes no sense to me. I'd rather us go back to some Stoic philosophy than Epicurean philosophy. We've given ourselves over. I don't want to get anywhere near that. I don't want my family anywhere near that. Paul engaged. What then? What else? Do you see how Paul contextualized his gospel methods with the unwavering gospel message? Methods change. Message doesn't. You see how he did that? He didn't share the same exact thing in the synagogue that he did to the people of Athens, these Greeks who believed in a pantheon of gods. It was a completely different. If you go through the book of Acts, he ministered to people in different ways. He met them where they were. Remember what he said? I'll become all things to all people. He didn't give up the message. The message was unchanging. The methods that he used did change to engage the people where they were at. Do you see it? He was respectful. He was bold. He went to the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you, but how do you do it? With respect and gentleness. This is Paul. I don't, I don't know how you grew up, but, but somewhere in life, you, you often have to adjust how you interact with people. Not to be fake, but like, 
I grew up as a country kid, but I played golf, so I was at the country club. Those are two different groups of people. All right. Some of you are new to Texas, like you've come from the Pacific Northwest, you've come from California or Austin. It's all the same. <laughs> right? Love you. But seriously, and, and like, I was at my son's football game this week, and a guy introduced to, he had his maroon on, so we knew we were safe playing tomball. Had the maroon magnolia on, and we started talking, and he goes, yeah, we just, I, I hesitate to say this, we moved here from California. Like, we love you, we're glad that you're here, but there's an adjustment when you get here to go, whoa, like this is a different place. So you have to relate in a little different way. Do you know how to relate to people who don't believe the truth of the gospel, or have you spent so much time only around Christians that you don't know how to engage anymore? That's just tough. That's tough for me, because I'm a pastor, so I've got to look for opportunities outside of this to engage with people that believe very differently. How are you observing how other people tick, what they believe, and what they're passionate about? And man, how do you engage people who do define things like love and justice and truth and freedom and mercy very differently in this culture than you do? Listen, God is a God of love and justice and freedom and mercy and grace and you can use those truths and define them in right ways to engage the person who looks at love as just love and go, you know what? There's something about what you're saying that's right. There is something called love. But let me tell you how to define it and let me tell you the source of it. There is something called justice. But justice just isn't for a person who looks a certain way, who's a certain age and a certain gender. And everybody else is canceled. That's not justice. Let me tell you about justice. Let me tell you where justice and love come together in the person of Jesus at the cross. Let me tell you about true freedom. It's not autonomy. It's not do whatever I want. Let me tell you about the freedom that comes from Christ. Let me tell you about the logos, the truth of God, the knowledge of God in a man. Let me tell you about his mercy and his grace to save sinners like you and me. There's a way, there's always a way to share the good news of Christ and the cross with people. But listen, you can know the culture. You can either know how to contextualize and speak to people who believe differently than you. But listen, if you don't know your immovable God well enough, you're not gonna know how to plug all that in. Do you notice this with Paul? And I'm not saying you have to be the theologian Paul, okay? You don't know that. But you got to know God from his word and who he is so you might have those avenues to go, let me tell you about the unknown God to you. you got to know God well enough to do that. You got anybody in your family that notices um, details like the frame in the living room when it's off? Who's that person in your family? Um, the observer. Sometimes People would do this to me because that's me. In college, they would just like move a frame in my room. I'm like, who did it? Just roommates messing with one another. We got to be able to observe and know the word and know who God is so well that when we see area, we're like, error, we know. That frame is just off. And here's the deal. It's just off a little bit oftentimes. But a little bit goes a long way. Do you know the 
You're a movable God. We've got to know who God is. We've got to know his word. Can you see the holes in human wisdom and the ideologies of our day? Do you know how to triage essential truths from tertiary truths and their applications? That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be engaged in learning and knowing. More books down here, by the way. Doctrine, truth. How do I apply doctrine to life? And some of you go, I don't want to study doctrine. It's going to take away from my love for people. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. If you know God, the more you, I'm sorry, I wouldn't be, I'm trying not, I wouldn't be mean. Like, I just hear that. Like, if you study doctrine, it's just going to make you not care for people. It's going to make you cold. It's not doctrine, the truth of God that's making you cold. It's something else. The more you know God, the more it ought to produce care for what God cares about. It's a false dichotomy. You see it in Timothy, by the way. Preach the word in season and out. Restore, rebuke, correct. People wishing to have their ears tickled will accumulate teachers for their own good and what they want to hear, not what's true. And then Paul says to him, do the work. He calls all of that, okay? He calls preaching the word and knowing truth and doctrine and separating good from evil and error from truth. He sums it up by saying this, do the work of an evangelist. That's what an evangelist does. Evangelists love people with the truth. But look, here's the reality. There's going to be mixed responses. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared when you speak up? Because the assumption here I'm making is is that we're going to speak up. When we speak up, are you okay with somebody calling you a seed picker, a babbler? What you say is weird. Do you have thick enough skin to be okay with that? If four people on the Harvard board, when you share the gospel, come to faith, do you leave that going, well, not everybody came to know Jesus. I'm going to not do this anymore. Right? Frame the expectations. People rejected Jesus. They rejected the message of the gospel from Paul. But some believed and some were intrigued. I don't know how many times it took you to hear the gospel just on a human level. I grew up in a little Baptist church, and I heard the gospel on Sunday morning like 14 times, on Sunday night like 14 times, and on Wednesday night. I had a drug problem. They just drugged me to church, and I heard the gospel my whole childhood, and I'll do the same to my kids. I heard it, and I heard it, and I heard it, and I heard it. I heard it in college from people I didn't want to hear it from. When I was 20 years old, I came to know Jesus. I heard the gospel thousands of times. I could explain a lot of the Bible to people. Don't stop. God will use it. So expect mixed responses. And maybe you've had bad experiences with sharing the gospel and people reject the gospel or they reject you feel like you. You've been made fun of, et cetera. And so you just stop. And you hadn't done it. I I talk to people all the time in the church. I hadn't shared the gospel with anybody in like 10 years, if I'm being honest. And we kind of land in these categories. Well, I'm a Calvinist, you know. And that means that God's going to do it. Hey, maybe he wants to use you. Or that's not my spiritual gift. You can can run down all the things, right? And oftentimes what's under that, what's under that is a bad experience with people making fun of you or people rejecting you. 
No, there's mixed responses to the gospel. But the big question of the text, hang with me, because this is probably most important. Last thing. What motivated Paul to get off the bench on Labor Day for him and share? What motivated him? I mean, if you look at that list of four things, sorry, four things. I know lots of people who can study their culture and know it. I can do that. I know people who can have common ground with people and contextualize the methods. I know people, lots of people in this room can know an immovable God. You can teach an equip class or a seminary class on who God is. And so could I. But there's something you can't teach. Are you cultivating a zeal for God? Because when you have a zeal for God and you love God and you pursue God, it creates a love for not yet believing people. Look at verse 16. He was provoked in his spirit. It has two thoughts. There's two ideas that come out of the idea that he was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed because he saw a whole place, a whole city that was worshiping false gods. And he had a zeal for God to say, no, God is the only God, and he receives glory, not false deities, not people. He had a zeal for God. But notice what that zeal for God did not produce. It did not produce an arrogance. It did not produce, I'm going to be an angry bird with people if they don't believe. I'm going to treat them like junk. No, it produced a love for not yet believing people in the city of Athens who believed in all kinds of gods, who were given over to pleasure. That hurts a little harder. It hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? It's not taught in a classroom, but it's cultivated. And you need to be asking God, we need to, as a church, be asking God to cultivate in our hearts a deeper love for God and who he is and his glory because of truth. But listen, there certainly is a truth response in our hearts, to what is false. We ought to be provoked. There ought to be indignation. But there's also a love response to those who are lost. Do you see this? This is true of Jesus, where he comes to the adulterous woman, where he comes to all the, these different people he meets. And he loves them, and he has compassion on them, and he also does what? Repent, turn from your ways. He does both. This is what you see with Paul here. The same pattern. You ought to have a righteous hatred for sin in your own life and the lives of others. You also have a righteous love for the sinner because Titus says, you too were once. You too were once an adulterer. You too were once a hater of people. You too were once there. It's both. You have to have a zeal for God which produces a love for not yet believers. A pastor said it this way, if you are not filled with, indig filled with indignation, that provo provocation in your heart for truth, you won't have the courage to do what Paul did here. But if you are only filled, filled with indignation, you won't have the gentleness or compassion for people to be affected. So where are you at? I feel like those are like, you're either in first gear, 
you know, and there's this rub to it, or you're kind of in fifth grade, you're just cruising. That's kind of the, the grid that I think of. Oftentimes, we're either one place or the other. Truth or compassion and grace. The beauty is when we have both, God tends to use that in the lives of people. I love, as I look around this room, I see a lot of people that are filled with grace and truth. Grace and truth. And that's a beautiful, awesome thing to see. Let me close with this. Paul used Greek culture to share more. He used poets. If you look at verse 27, where it says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. If you're familiar with the 8th century B.C. poet and writer Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, which maybe you had to read in school. Remember the Odyssey? Chapter 9-ish or so? You see, the Cyclops is blinded by Odysseus. He blinds him in the cave, and what happens to the Cyclops? What's he trying to do? He's trying to get out of the cave. And he's trying to feel his way out of the cave. It's dark. He's looking, trying to get out of the cave. See, that's the way we are without the God who's creator, sustainer, life giver. It's the way we are without having light. All of us are the Cyclops who are blinded without a way out. And yet, God turns on the lights in his son, Jesus, the light of the world. And he brings light and life. Do you know that truth? Or maybe this morning you're here and you're going, I'm still grappling in the dark. I'm still trying to find my way. I've spent most of my time grappling with different belief systems. In truth, know this. God has come near. In the person and work of his son, Jesus. And you can know him. He's not far off. He's come near. And Christ has died on a cross for your sins and mine and brought life to your life. He's near. Do you know him? And if you know Christ, the Bible says some things about you. We read them in 1 Peter. It tells you who you are. You're a people. You're part of a family. It also talks about what our role is and what our mission is and what our desire ought to be to show people light that are in the cave and in the darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, remind us, believer, of this. Look at this. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us because we have concluded this. Have you concluded this? That one has died for all, Christ. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might not lo no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, died and was raised. That's Jesus. For, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and here's the job. 
Here's the mission for us as believers in Christ who are compelled and controlled by the love of God. All this is from God. From through Christ, for though Christ reconciled us to himself, he gave us, here it is, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and trusting to us. Here it is, the message. The message of reconciliation, the good news of the gospel. God's entrusted it now to us as believers in Christ, and it ought to compel us to share the truth of the good news. Why? Because we're ambassadors. We're his representatives. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Do you know that truth this morning? Are you in that cave trying to figure it out? God has made himself known through his son, Jesus. And if you know that message is the love of Christ and the gospel compelling you to move forward, to be an ambassador, how do you respond? How do you respond in a pluralistic world? Do you just not respond? Do you take Labor Day? Are you engaging people with the truth and the power of the gospel? So your takeaway is this, love God. Our love for God compels our love for others. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We often don't, don't know. We, we often don't know and have a hard time knowing how to respond to the world around us, knowing how to share with our neighbor or a family member, or someone we don't know, how to engage people even online with the hopes of sharing the gospel with them. Thanks for some good instruction from Paul in his ministry and his life that you really do still transform hearts you really still move in people's hearts to believe in the Son who has come near. In Jesus' name, amen.